Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. All right. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Notes from the Field. And we are going to be continuing in our discussion of what the, if I can kind of loosely use this term, what, what families, if I can say that, look like in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. That's a stretch of the word, of course. But, right. Um, we talked about... Um, Repro- reproduction. Yeah, reproduction and courtship last week. Yeah. And so I think uh, maybe an interesting way to do this uh, would be to think about um, starting with God, our father. So mm-hmm. God is our father. He's the ultimate father. He is good and perfect and omnipotent and all those other omnis all knowing. And he has a wise and good plan and he's completely sovereign over the affairs of the universe. And so uh, it's difficult to, to uh, compare our perfect father to other types of fathers, but we're made in God's image. And so uh, as his image bearers, uh, we have parents and we are parents and it takes two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, we men needed helpers. And so um, as his image bearers, we take our direction from his, his example as parents. Um, and so an interesting part of the life history of species, that is uh, the details of a creature's growth and reproduction, is our topic for today. And uh, this, is, this is a follow-up, as I said, to last week's courtship and reproduction. And so to make the job of parenting possible, the good Lord has endowed those creatures he desires to be good parents, interestingly enough, with small brood sizes. Mm-hmm. This seems to typically be the, be the case, a small number of offspring. And so it's increasingly hard to be good parents as your brood size increases. Right. Yeah. It's, a, it's even if you just look at a materialist perspective there, energy and resources are mm-hmm. going to be spread more thin. Right. As the number of offspring increases. And a lot less parental care. A lot less energy and, and resources spent on parental care. And so uh, one thing that I uh, noticed as I was prepping for today was that the, it seems to me the type of nursery that the animal has or provides for its young as they, as they grow is an indication of the subsequent level of parental care. Mm-hmm. And so we, if, we, if this theory is true, then we'd expect to see the most attentive parents corresponding to the most elaborate nursery. Mm-hmm. Probably not always true, but maybe a, a good rule of thumb. And what do I mean by an elaborate nursery? For vertebrates, I mean the amniotic egg. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean the male. Well, that's, that's developed. Uh, are you going back to parental care? Are you saying, I, I'm corresponding. I'm making a correlation between the type of nursery and the subsequent parental care. Okay. Uh, to make the case for the types of species we'd expect to see as good parents. Right. And so amniotic egg, that's an elaborate nursery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an incredibly self-contained unit that's going to allow that individual to grow. Uh, the, placenta, the placenta of the placental mammal is mm-hmm. an incredible elaborate nursery. And the, uh, the, uh, the pouch and, and nipple and the rest of the reproductive parts of the um, marsupial mammal is also an elaborate nursery. Mm-hmm. And so those are three, just three different types of nurseries we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be talking about what does this parent care look like in those creatures that have eggs, in those creatures that or rather that lay eggs, and in those creatures that uh, bear live young, such as, uh, such as mammals. Mm-hmm. 
And so what are some of the creatures that you've well, been when exploring, I'm, Gordon? When I was thinking about parental care, we all know that mammals and birds exhibit a, a high degree of parental care. And so I've always liked to, to look at things that most people overlook. I've always liked the, the strange, the bizarre, the creepy crawly. I've called myself the PR man for creepy crawlies. And often we, we don't give the creepy crawlies much credit. We think, well, they're just these ectotherms, cold-blooded. They, they can't have elaborate, they'll just lay, you know, they'll reproduce, they'll lay eggs and let them go. Now that, you know, once they hatch, basically they're on their own. Right. And that is true for a lot of uh, reptiles and amphibians, but you fish. find some, and fish. Uh, you were mentioning earlier before we started recording R&K strategists and, you know, there are animals that produce a, a ridiculous number of offspring where most, there's no parental care, virtually none, uh, other than what was invested in the egg. Right. And many in this dog-eat-dog -dog world, or minnow-eat-fish-eat-minnow, I mean, a lot of those offspring die from the environment, from predators, from all sorts of things. And the, then a, a small fraction of the entire brood survives. Yeah. And then there are case strategists, which have very few offspring. Uh, and generally speaking, the case strategists have invested more into the, the egg where, where um, the offspring is usually larger and there are fewer in number. And so the parents, either one or the other or both, can contribute to uh, nurturing this, this offspring. So what I was looking at is, um, first, not a ton of parental care in reptiles, but the crocodilians are the exception. We think of alligators, caimans, gharials, and crocodiles. And I'm not going to go into the more, you know, the, the difference in shape. Um, you, we'd need to have it be video to, to show you these differences. But they all, to some extent, have some pretty extraordinary parental care. And uh, just for, for instance, they'll, they'll, the, the American alligator will build this big, huge pile, a nest of rotting vegetation, lay her eggs in it, and the young are incubated from the, the, the heat of the, the decomposing nest. And then when they hatch out, there's, well, the, the female will guard the nest and protect it, protect the, the eggs, protect the nest. And to, even after they hatch, there's going to be a lot of accompanying of the young and, and watching over these little, little hatchlings, even when they're in the water. And so another, just to, to, to look at another crocodilian, the crocodilians are, include all of these the caimans, the alligators, and the crocodiles. Yep. One other example is where multiple females will have, you know, there'll be a bunch of young, 
And so we're, we're familiar with the concept of a youth group, right? <laughs> so all these youngs, young hatch out and it's sort of a communal group of youngsters that are all, that all have different parents. But sometimes one of the parents is, and I don't know how they elect, but, and it's that they trade off, but sometimes one Cayman will watch over this huge group. I mean, well, the, will these, all these individual young be from different nests? Yeah, they'll be the, from different nests. Just nearby one another. Yeah, nearby one another. And then gotcha. for- it's the evolution uh, of the daycare center. Yeah, the evolution of the, yeah. <laughs> and even when they're migrating from one swamp to another, this one female will be walking alongside this whole bunch of little tiny caimans just hopping and skipping along, being guarded by this one parent. The other thing is really extraordinary in, the, in some of the crocodiles. Some of the crocodile babies won't be able to hatch. They, they won't just, they just won't have enough oomph to get out of the shell. And, uh, They'll be chirping inside the eggshell, and then the, 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 one of the parents will come and literally pit, dig up the, the eggs. This is buried in sand. Uh, buried, yeah, buried wow. in sand. Dig up the eggs and hear the chirping cry, help, help, get me out of here, and uh, pick up the egg. And these are massive jaws that can kill, you know, Big, big, yeah, kill us. And they'll pick this, gingerly pick up the egg and crack it with the teeth. That's incredible attentiveness. Yeah, well, wow. I mean, it's kind of like reminds me of uh, when we're trying to crack a, a walnut with the, the nutcracker. Yeah. You want to have enough pressure, but it's very controlled pressure. Right. Because you don't want to, when it cracks, you don't want to smush the nut. Right. You want to just get that eggshell cracked. It's the same with these big crocs. They're just putting enough pressure to slit open the egg hmm. and let the, the youngster out. And then she'll even do a fairy service where some of the hatchlings will be in her lower jaw, resting on her tongue, and she'll have her mouth gaping open and the teeth in her lower jaw look like the bars of the playpen. And uh, <laughs> we just hope nothing tickles her throat. Right. <laughs> and then grief. she, she uh, ferries all, all these kids from the nest down to the body of water. So it's just, there are many That's other examples. That's mom of the year award. That's right there. mom of the year award. And, it, you know, when I contrast that with the, the sinfulness of humans that abort their babies, you know, here we think we're all civilized. And, and we think we are good. And it's like, okay, humans are going against God's law, killing their, their own children in the womb, the most helpless form of human life. And here we have these man-eating crocodiles showing more parental care for their young. That's remarkable. I was talking with a, a mom at the park the other day. We had a cookout and there were a lot of folks there. and. Um... She was remarking how, you know, when she'd first had children, she was assumed that she would have the free range children and they'd just go wherever they wanted. And then as they, as her children became more capable and running around and disappearing and, and going 
uh, maybe a little farther than we could see or than we could uh, holler to them. Mm -hmm. um, an instinct kicks in that, hey, I'm a, I'm, where's my kid? I haven't heard or seen my child in a few minutes or however long. Right. I need to go make sure they're okay. And she was right. kind of remarking how she was surprised at that, but thankful that God supplied that instinct yeah. to do so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, that's a fantastic example. Um, I love it. Uh, um, uh, most of my examples will, of course, come from the bird world. And yeah. I think the first one uh, that I will, um, I will mention is that of uh, the loon. And so mm. there, are, there are four North American loon species. There might only be four worldwide. I think four or five, depending how you lump and split them. Right. Uh, Pacific, red-throated, common, yellow-billed, and Arctic, um, and maybe, maybe a sixth. And these loons are, are strangely built creatures. Mm -hmm. They, uh, when you, when we list our criteria for what constitutes a bird, uh, the loons kind of uh, disrupt things a little bit. <laughs> they don't have hollow bones at all. Their okay. bones are rock solid like wow. a penguin's. Wow. Um, because it's more important that they're capable swimmers, mm -hmm. um, than it is that they necessarily need to, uh, to be able to, uh, fly massive distances. Uh, and, and quickly. And so these, these loons are constructed a little bit strange. These birds, they tend to be, um, at the beginning of your field guide, a lot of, a lot of t taxonomists over the years have tended to have this organizational system where they, they seemingly, or you could say they do this intentionally put the quote unquote, according to evolutionary standards, the most primitive birds, uh, at the beginning of the field guide and leading to the most uh, advanced or complex birds at the end. There's mm -hmm. lots of ways you could define primitive or advanced according to the evolutionists. Yeah, right. Um, but, uh, this bird is constructed in a strange way, very dense body, very oily feathers. Uh, this is a bird of the water that needs to dive deep and spends an awful lot of time, uh, in the water. And its legs are so far back on its body, uh, that it's, it's often very difficult for this bird to even walk. Mm -hmm. And so naturalists in the past have called this the broken wing bird. Hmm. And there are reports every, every spring in certain areas where, where loons actually end up getting stranded inland and they can't right themselves and, and walk back to the water. They really need they a stretch they, of water to take flight. Okay. And they can't take flight off of the they, ground. They can't take flight off of the ground. Yeah. And so, uh, one of these loons in particular, my favorite is the red throated loon. Mm -hmm. And so the red-throated loon, and uh, when I was in the Arctic, we were focusing on red-throated Pacific and yellow-billed loons, and we were studying each of these birds and, and finding their nests and going back every few days to see if they'd hatched and how they were doing. And the red-throated loons were interesting. They always chose the smallest pond, very small pond, nest on the side, mm -hmm. chocolate brown, two eggs, almost always two eggs. And those little chicks hatch. And they're capable swimmers, you know, in, in 12 to 24 hours, really fluffy, precocious, young. And the parental care uh, that I, I have observed most frequently is simply uh, the act of feeding. And so the constant, and I should back up a little bit there, one of, the, uh, one of the requirements for this amniotic egg, this egg that has all of these different membranes and self-sustaining mm -hmm. yolk and, and respiratory mechanisms, is they must stay warm. Mm -hmm. We don't have to stay, uh, we don't have to, uh, our, our mothers didn't have to keep us warm because we were inside our body. And so these birds and reptiles, uh, sometimes reptiles will brood their eggs, I believe, or put them in a mm -hmm. warm, warm spot. 
And so the first thing these parents do is keep those eggs warm. Uh, the next thing they do is, is spend an awful lot of time protecting them and feeding them. And so watching one of our jobs on this research project was to count how many stickleback fish the mom and dad fed the babies. Okay. And we had to mark one bird so we could distinguish between the two. There were almost always two, two loon chicks. Right. And so an awful lot of feeding, right. uh, repeated feeding of, of fish um, so and other types of, of animal matter. I have just a quick question, you know, in bird, with the bird young, you've got the altricial and the, and the precocial. Yeah. Precocial, the, the birds are sort of up and about very quickly after hatching. Yep. Like chicks and chickens and things like that. Whereas songbirds are these sort of ugly. Of, blind and naked. Affair. Yeah, blind and naked. Yeah. And so, and both require parental care. Right. Um, have they done a lot of measuring on whether the altricial requires more investment for a longer period of time or it's just the, a difference? Yeah, in, that's a great question. A difference yeah. in the fact that precocial chicks are up and about very quickly and not looking like these disgusting little. I would say part of it depends on. Yeah, I'm not sure how long loons take to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. I know that songbirds are, are pretty uh, astute. They're, they're still fed by their parents mm -hmm. several weeks after hatching and yeah. after fledging out of the nest even. Um, and they, they go through that altricial, that, and they get, they grow and develop very quickly. Yeah. But they're just. I would assume it takes more parental care um, for the altricial young. Yeah, that's um, my my gut. Yeah. No. So, so the, the other interesting thing about these loons is that, and I don't think I've told this story, hopefully not, is that the, the red throat loon has a sense of hygiene. It kind of has a sense of, I want to keep the home nice. And, and they're in these very small ponds and they quickly move their young. They, they seem to have this innate understanding that the smaller the pond, the more uh, you can easily pollute your own food supply. And so they actually lay down and pull themselves across the tundra uh, to a larger pond and the chicks follow them. And they're pulling themselves with their wings? With their wings. They wow. Are, you can see something similar with loons on the lake. They actually pull themselves in the water at times. This is pretty rare to see. I happened to be in a blind watching uh, the loons when the mother uh, did this, laid down flat on her belly uh, at the edge of the pond and started pulling herself from the small pond to actually to the riverbank. So they could, uh, they could move to a much, uh, a larger, a larger location to get food. And the young followed suit right after her. And wow. so that was an so interesting. The small, they don't need a, a big stretch of water to take off. The red-throated loons don't. Because that's why they can still manage on a small pond. Yeah, and, and, that's and exactly still, right. So still the, take off. Right. So the red-throated loon parents are, they can come and go on that pond as they please. They're, of the loons, they're the ones that can take flight most easily without a long landing pad. But the young that haven't learned that ability yet, uh, the parents are training them by demonstrating that pulling themselves across the tundra with their wings. And so, wow. yeah, protection, uh, moving to a new home, uh, feeding, kind of three interesting aspects of of parental care there in the loons. Wow, that's great. Well, um, I'm moving to from crocodilians to amphibians. And, you know, as you know, one of my favorite groups is turtles, not a whole lot of parental care. The, they basically, I mean, if you don't include 
you know, digging a nest. Yes, they, they, they dig a nest, they lay their eggs, they bury them and all that. But I normally think of parental care as after hatching, mm-hmm. what kind of um, behavior. And turtles, they lay their eggs and walk away. Walk away. And, and the hatchlings are on their own from there on out. But the amphibians, particularly the, the frogs, there's a lot of examples of parental care in frogs. And um, one of the, the most famous examples are the poison dart frogs or poison mm. arrow frogs. These are tropical rainforest frogs in the New World, so Central, South America. And several, uh, quite a few species, I forget the exact number of species of poison dart frogs, but the, um, depending on the species, they, they will lay their eggs on the, on the forest floor. And of course, they do hatch out as tadpoles. So you go, what? This tadpole has no place to swim when it hatches because they're just under, in the leaf litter. And then the tadpole hatches out and immediately the parent, either the mom or the dad, the tadpole squirms up onto their back and wow. gets a piggyback ride, sort of suction onto the skin of the back. And the poison dart frog then clambers, hops up these big, huge rainforest trees with the big buttress roots and things like that and goes way up into the canopy. And of course, these branches have all sorts of epiphytes. Epiphytes are other plants growing on the rainforest trees. And there's one type of epiphyte that was, is particularly utilized by these poison dart frogs. And these are, are called bromeliads. And these bromeliads are these plants that sort of have a, uh, a crown shape look to them and they form a little cup of water. When the rain falls, the water's trapped where all the leaves converge near its base. And these poison dart frogs climb up there and then lower themselves down into the little pool like, like a boat ramp going down into the pool. And then when they get uh, their back wet, the, the tadpole knows to let go. And now this tadpole is way up in the Way tree. up there in the area, you know, in a tiny pond. cup of water. And How many eggs do these guys lay? Well, they may have several, but they you, they put their tadpoles in various cups, even the same brood. Spread out, yeah. They spread them out. Spread them out up there. Wow. You know, I don't know how many. Not very many, because that would just be quite a job. Because then the male often looks after them, because there's not much to eat. It's, it's a good place in that it's, it's, it's much more protected environment. Uh, it's a little water dish mm-hmm. with rarely any predators. Sometimes some dragonfly nymphs are in there, but, or damselfly nymphs, but generally uh, devoid of predators. And, but there's not much to eat in there. Some detritus falls down into the cup, but then the, the, the males hopping around looking and monitoring all the young that he's responsible for and can tell from the movements if he backs down into the cup and the, the, uh, the tadpole can sort of communicate by various wiggles and vibrations that I'm hungry, get me some breakfast. 
And so the so he attends each of those. Yeah, and gets gets Goodness. communication from these little tadpoles that I'm hungry, Dad, go get Mom. So, <laughs> so he goes and finds Mom hopping around in the canopy somewhere, and nags her, pesters her until she follows him to the cup of water, and he just tells her get in, and she gets in and his goal is to make her lay an egg that's a un, unfertilized egg into the dish and the the baby will feed on get the, out of here yeah wow well, i'm blown away feeds on the unfertilized egg and and he's constantly monitoring his other tadpoles and getting her to lay these infertile eggs for food wow yeah, it's, it's that is shocking. It is a a shocker. It's it's sort of run of the mill cool story for for herpetology, but that's a that's one that I love oh, talking man. about. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. And then you know eventually it's it it metamorphoses into a froglet and then hops out of the dish and can fend for itself. That is incredible. I love it. So that's impressive parental care. Uh, you know, uh, before we get into another bird here, I just want to do a brief mention of of marsupials generally. We all mm-hmm. we all know a little bit about them. We know that uh, they tend to have pouches. We know that they live in the South Pacific, mostly mainland Australia, mm-hmm. Papua New Guinea, some other outlying islands, and, and occasionally the, and we have the a opossum. Right then, our that goes uh, all over. The yeah. Place. Do you, so, do you say the O? For for I say possum. I drop the O. That's okay. Is that, that okay? Is, you won't is, hold is, that against is, me? No, I won't. Okay. It's a, sort of the, the We both hill. have some Virginia connections, so right. we can kind of awesome. claim immunity for yeah. the Virginia yeah, possum. Yeah, we can, we can be hick occasionally. <laughs> <clears throat> Good. Um, so uh, marsupials are, are remarkable. They're remarkable right. because many of them have analogous placental uh, relatives, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I use that term very, very kind of broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, there are quote unquote placental rabbits, placental mice, placental shrews, all my, and then of course, very well-known koalas and kangaroos. Uh, but these creatures, they, things seem to be kind of normal mammalian behavior, internal fertilization, the male uh, and female mate, uh, the sperm fertilizes the egg. And then uh, that little tiny zygote starts to develop uh, inside the inside the body of the female, and in the marsupial mammal, uh, that gestation period, that period un- during which the uh, the small baby is developing inside the mother, the gestational period, it's only about a month. Right in the marsupial, right, and they jettison their warm, cozy home. Coming they, out like like way premature. Coming out way premature. Looks, well, looks embryonic. Pre- yeah, very embryonic, very naked, very blind, very. I mean, kind of like a baby mouse. Kind of like a baby mouse. Looks like they but shouldn't quite be out yet. It, yeah, shouldn't. And yeah, so, what are you doing coming out? <laughs> Why are you coming out? I'm coming out because there's no placenta in there. Right. There's no placenta, so mom's food is is not nourishing me, and I need some gas exchange, and I need to mm-hmm. excrete wastes and. And so I'm going to come up into this really warm, moist chamber. Right. But you have to crawl from the vagina all the way up through the fur 
So this mountaineer, a mountaineer <laughs> pre- embryo. Uh, uh, embryo, basically <laughs> that is looks like a pre, you know, preemie, preemie, a very, very, very <laughs> early. Look like it can do anything, and it it knows Cap- instinctively to climb through that fur. Yeah, and and fi- and finds that that teat or that nipple. Well, up and over the rim of the pouch. Yeah, right. He has to get out first and into the pouch. Yeah, he gets yeah. into the pouch and then then gropes around in the pouch to find the, the teat. Groping in the dark and finally latches on. I'm sure he on. knows where he's going, but latches on. Latches on and stays there for months. Yeah. Stays there for months. And then even-, even Sucking at, milk. Sucking milk, growing, um, putting on- Putting on weight, cells are dividing. Getting furry. Getting furry. Getting actually looking like a mammal. Yeah. Opening its eyes. And some of these, you know, some of these probably wait a little bit too long. Mom mom waits to wean them sometimes a little bit too long, according to our, you know, kind of standards probably. I've seen some massive joeys hop out of mom's pouch. Yeah. Kind of wonder if the- Like, you know- The toddler- Yeah. Needs to go. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Get out Hang of there, around. man. Yes. So marsupials are, they're, they're marvelous. Yeah, they are. Uh, they really have a, a, a different uh, type of, of nursery that God has uh, planned mm-hmm. and, and designed elegantly. Yeah. 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 Any other creatures you want to mention? Well, you know, there's another cool, I feel like we need to do two episodes on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it. You say that often. Yeah, I do, but, <laughs> um, but I'll go ahead and do one more, the African bullfrog. And, and this is interesting because you'd think it wouldn't be parental care because they often lay tons of eggs and there's just hundreds of tadpoles and they are sort of typical in that they lay them in a pond, but they lay them in a pond that's devoid of predators, a smaller pond. And they, they hatch and do the tadpole thing. And so all these little blackish uh, tadpoles swimming around, hundreds of them. But then as the uh, African sun is beating down on this, this puddle or large puddle, it's starting to dry up. Mm-hmm. And as it dries, the uh, concentration of tadpoles gets denser and denser until finally it looks like a, a very dense soup, brown soup with just not much to swim and pretty Frog soon soup. that that is going to be dried pond with a bunch of dead tadpoles right because they're not going to be able to develop into froglets before it dries out team's so, got to decide to do so, something here. something yeah so what happens is uh the dad frog i hope i'm remembering this right i know uh, i think it's the dad will the the puddle will be nearby another larger body of water and the 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 male will then get to the larger body of water and dig a canal wow and will get his haunches rear legs on the shoreline and start bulldozing with his hind legs uh, a canal going straight to the small puddle and He'll just keep on digging, 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 just chugging backwards and finally connects the large pond to the drying up puddle. 
And once he makes that connection, I mean, it's like, hallelujah. Oh, man. Uh, and then you see the all, waters. all the water from the big pond sort of flood in. But then the tadpoles swim out. That is really larger. neat. You know, I'm seeing a pattern here, and I, I think that pattern is the Lord is going to design the creature to survive and thrive in the habitat we tend to find them in. And that right. might mean endowing this frog with engineering skills. Exactly. Where we don't usually see those in frogs. And it's even more flexible than that, especially if you think in terms, I don't know if we've talked about baromenology, but of created kinds and how if numbers of species have diverged from a common created kind, mm -hmm. you've got to have ver a variety of programs. I mean, uh, assuming that there's uh, some diversity um, of different species right. in the same kind. You've got to have these different programs and built in to uh, the genetics or the epigenetics of, of the creature yep. so that as they encounter different habitats across the globe, as they spread out from the ark, they are going to adapt, but adapt not in a random pointless or directionless, not through just random mistakes, but a pre-packaged behavioral blueprint right. that's somehow turned on. Don't know, we're not going to go into the details of uh, how these different animals get these amazing behaviors, but it's no simple task. Some of these are incredibly complex and there's this perfect coordination between the actual morphology of these creatures and their behavior. Yeah, this fine tuning. Yes. That's neat. I'll just do one last little bit here. You bet. Um, you can't talk about, you can't really talk about parental care without bringing up a few bad actors, bad apples. And in the bird world, it has a few. Uh, just oh, man. Mention, just to mention two of the most well-known. You know exactly <laughs> where I'm going with this one. Um, yeah. And of course, that that is the brood parasite. Right. Right. We think of parasites, we tend to think of, you know, those ticks pesky ectoparasites like ticks. Exactly, Please. or endoparasites like tapeworms. Uh, these are a parasite of a different type. They're not, they're not parasitizing the individual by sapping nutrients. Right. These parasites are, are parents uh, and, and, their, and their offspring. They're mm -hmm. both culpable here. The mm -hmm. kids less so because they just get dropped off. And so the cowbird, cowbird is kind of the quintessential North American brood parasite example. Mm -hmm. Brown-headed cowbird, well-known species, very very ubiquitous, found across the continent, uh, used to be uh, historically or anecdotally, uh, the cowbird was associated with the bison herd. Hmm. And so cowbirds followed the bison mm -hmm. and bison were highly migratory. And so these birds kept on the move. And hence, uh, they actually forewent a lot of the modern conveniences of normal families. Mm -hmm. So much so that these birds don't even stop to build a nest. Right. They're so busy doing whatever they're doing originally following the bison. Now they're Are associated they, were with- Were they eating with the insects that the herds kicked up or what? Yeah, that's my understanding is they're attracted to uh, livestock and the associated insect, insect pests. So they'll dig, they'll, they'll also forage uh, through, uh, through waste and be, kind of have a conical bill like a lot of finches. Okay. So they'll, they'll eat seeds as well. 
And so these are kind of omnivorous generalist types of birds. Um, and if you're that busy eating and, and uh, following these migratory ungulates around the continent, you maybe forget or you just don't build a nest. And so these birds actually drop their eggs in songbirds, other songbird species nests. Right. And they, they watching them work, it's almost, it's almost upset me at times, I think, it's watching this red, evil, you know, I think it is natural mm -hmm. evil. Watching a yellow warbler or a hooded warbler, watching a hooded warbler in the Cuyahoga River Valley and watching how hard the parents work to build that nest and how hard they work to keep the eggs warm and, and then start. And away. then get a cowbird. And then egg. all of a sudden a cowbird is looking around. It's not busy building a nest. It's busy spying out the country and looking for a nice home that it can dump its egg off in. And mm -hmm. it'll dump its egg. And the egg is, is painfully, obviously larger than the hooded warbler egg. But the parent uh, accepts the egg out of its good-natured heart. Some bird species are known to recognize the difference in that cowbird egg and, and kind Knock of- Knock it out. Yeah, kind of uh, use, their, use their feet to push it out. Um, but most don't. And so mm -hmm. this cowbird egg is larger. It's hotter. It tends to uh, hatch sooner. And then the, as most songbirds do, they, they squawk and squeak and, and chirp to get their, their fill. And right. this bird outcompetes its, its newly appointed siblings um, for food. It will even kick the young siblings out of the nest itself. The rightful heirs. The rightful are heirs. Are kicked out of the nest. They are. There's probably an Old Testament, yeah. you know, story we can connect mm -hmm. to this. They, they, and so those cowbirds are very successful in this effort. They parasitize dozens of bird species uh, you, successfully. So what keeps them from not overrunning? Uh, There's got to be some kind of there, feedback. There are that... some correlations here. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the correlations would be uh, many of these uh, bird species, uh, what we call den area density dependent species. And so hooded warblers, for example. And so uh, if the hooded warbler nest is, is right near the trail or right near the road, uh, that gives the cowbird, uh, the cowbirds like the edge. The cowbirds like the plains. They don't penetrate deep into the forest. Okay. So, and so there's gonna still be enough survivors to keep the other bird species from right. going extinct. Absolutely. Uh, but it is a, it is a important stewardship concern. Mm -hmm. You know, some birds you're only going to find if you walk a good 30 minutes deep into the woods or farther. And that's, and that's also a, a place where there tend to be lower numbers of cowbirds. Well, that's interesting to know because I've been seeing a bunch of brown-headed cowbirds out by my place. Okay. Re recently. So. Yeah. Have to, have to see who they're spying on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, it's great learning some new things from you, Will. Absolutely. Gordon, thanks uh, for those tales of uh, remarkably attentive herp, herp moms and dads. Yeah. We'll see Great. you next time. We'll see you. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.